0: This episode of Guitar Radio Show is brought to you in part by
1: BMFFX. BMFFX.com. Built by hand in Southern California. BMFFX captures the tones in your record collection and brings them to life. Overdrive, fuzz, wah, boosts, chorus, compressor, and vibe pedals with a purpose. Purchase online at bmffx.com or BMFFX Official Shop on Reverb. Enhance your tone and playing experience today with BMFFX, bmffx.com. Great tone made simple. Guitar Radio Show, the show dedicated to the guitar player,
0: guitar maker, gear builder, and purveyors of such items that you may not know about, but should. Here's your host, Mark Davin.
1: All right, everybody. Welcome back to Guitar Radio Show. You know, people, there's nothing like a musician that has chops for days and killer tone. We all dig that, right? We all dig that. But when they possess a deep, penetrating soul within every note they play and it hits you that way... Now you got something special Well, we've got something truly special today And uh, he has all of those aforementioned qualities And we're going to talk about his playing, his career His latest release, it's called Rust Belt Please welcome to Guitar Radio Show, Mr. Scott Sherrod How are you, sir? Hey, I'm so glad. I know that you are in transit right now to uh, Woodstock, New York, one of my favorite places. Beautiful place.
0: Yeah, we're, we're back and forth from New York City uh, every week because uh, my mother-in-law has a place up there, and we, we usually go up on the weekends and stuff and hang with her, um, but I'm going to pull over to a rest stop soon. By the way, I got a my name incorrectly and I totally forgive you because I have the most convoluted last name <laughs> it's actually pr- it's actually
1: pronounced Sherard Sherard um, Sherard but good good for you because you didn't say shepherd
0: which is very common I, I don't know how people turn the two R's into two P's but that that's one that I get all the time but you know thank you for having me and uh, you know I'm excited to have the chance to talk with you and talk
1: about music absolutely you know, one of the things that I notice about you is that you kind of walk the fence between these heart-driven songs that speak of America and these ridiculously cool groove-oriented joints that you do. You 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 really kind of embody American music. Is that is that just really just in you? Is that part of who you well, that's, really are? That's the uh, embody American music. I mean,
0: I I am an American. Um, I'm a white American uh, from basically a middle class background. I started out maybe lower middle class um, from the Midwest, which is you know kind of the subject of my new album, Rust Belt. Of course, the title kind of gives it away. Uh, you know, and really you know the reason I the reason I did that and in terms of like my background as an American is like you know my family is from Michigan and that whenever you're from Michigan it's always complicated um, maybe more than any other place in the United States except for the the uh, states of the American South and I think Michigan and particularly my friends from Memphis like to call Detroit Memphis, Memphis. Um I think a lot of that is because, you know, we have so many of these Southern geniuses from Southern families, like from Smokey Robinson to Aretha Franklin, who were you know, went from the South to the North, and they ended up in Detroit, and of course, we have the blues movement that went from the South to the North and ended up in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, and that brings me to, you know, my identity as an American, as a Midwestern American, is the sort of uh, racial, socio-economic, and political struggles that manifest in this country, and particularly the way they would manifest in the region that I'm from, being the Rust Belt. And the reason I include the region is because my family moved a lot, and I ended up living in Minnesota, Pennsylvania, and going to high school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, before I eventually moved to my adopted home in New York City. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the melting pot, of music, I, I like to call the, Ameri- the, the music that I love American roots music, because I refuse to adhere to any specific genre, and I truly
2: believe that it's all based in uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. Yeah. it's
0: all the blues. It's all the blues and gospel is where it all starts. It doesn't matter if you're talking about Hank Williams um, or Marvin Gaye or Jimi Hendrix. You know. Um, or, or Little Feet or the Allman Brothers for that matter. It, it starts with the blues and gospel, and that of course you know, brings you to a reckoning of uh, African and Afro-Caribbean music, but also you know, Appalachian music, um, and all these different types of things merging. So the reason I'm excited to be an American artist is because it gives me kind of a passport to mix genres however I want, and I suppose more specifically, they used to call it what I do rock and roll. I think they call it now Americana, jam, uh, blues rock. I don't know what
1: they call it now, but they used to call it rock and roll, and that's, that's where my heart is. Right. Well, see, I think that's just the marketing companies always looking for a new angle on trying how to sell this music. You know? Often. Yeah, I don't even know. I mean, rock and roll might even be canceled by the time this airs. I don't know. <laughs> let's hope not Jesus Christ but um, no yeah I mean growing up listening to you know le, you know, uh, listening to the almonds or listening to Little Feet or listening to shit listening to Elvin Bishop I didn't you know I, I, I thought of it as rock and roll it was all rock and roll to me it, it, you know there was no you know it was all I mean I knew where it came from right I mean what did Muddy Waters say uh, the blues had a baby and they called it rock and roll right so well, I mean, you couldn't
0: you couldn't have any more credible source than that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. That's, that's the
1: fa- that's the father speaking there. Right, exactly. So you know, it, it's 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 interesting. You know, it, uh, I was looking at your bio, and I, I i i was i got a little goofy with it. I said, you know, wow, it's interesting. He was born. You were born the day that Freddie King died, and Freddie King. Freddie King is my favorite of the Kings. Um, he just it's somehow oh, we've another. Got, we've got in common. Yeah, he just—it's just something about him. Every single stage of his career, and he had a—he had a storied career. It, w- it was really had its—he had so many amazing chapters musically, and um, it was. But the, the fact that you were born on the day that he died, do you ever wonder about reincarnation?
0: <laughs> well, certainly, I am certainly—I would never ever claim. <laughs> Any part of even a uh, even a pinky toe of the amount of talent that Freddie <laughs> King had, um, you know. But uh, but you know, sometimes I like to think, you know, I, when I'm having a when I'm having a tough time musically, I like to think that maybe I at least high fived him on the way in.
1: hmm Yeah, that's um, cool. I like that. That's really a great visual imprint.
0: You know, because um. Because I you know, I, I discovered his music very young. I was probably about twelve or so or thirteen or so when I started really
2: digging into his stuff. Yeah. And like all of us like all of us when we go from that gateway drug drug of rock and roll, although I did start my first thing I learned on the guitar was the Jimmy Reed shuffle, which was playing with my dad. Right. Um, so I had and Chuck Berry was the other thing, you know, those were the first O'Carroll, the intro to O'Carroll. For lead guitar and the rhythm on on uh, on uh, baby, what you want me to do? Uh-huh. So I had some I had some heavy blues shit
0: under my fingers right away, but there was something about Freddie's voice. Yeah, his style of guitar playing was very horn-like, and also he combined. You know, I think I, if my history is right, and it may or may not be, I think he was a little younger than BB and Albert, maybe by a couple years, yeah. and I feel like. His thing was kind of a combination of what they did, along with Freddie had a, you know, I've been told before that he had a little period in Chicago when he was young. Um, There's been rumors I've heard that he played the solo on Spoonful, and I played with Hubert Sumlin, and I never got a straight answer out of him about that when I was a teenager. I didn't really push him on it. But I know that Freddie, when he was making his first records in Ohio, you know, Hideaway was something that that Freddie reportedly nicked off of Earl Hooker you know seeing Earl Hooker play sets in Chicago and they play this tune to play the band off the stage an instrumental Mm -hmm. and um, apparently Freddie may have nicked that from Earl Hooker these are all like rumors I've heard over the years from other musicians who were there at the time Um, but Freddie I think was you know he's kind of a he's a Cuisinart of all those geniuses that he was around but then he's also got this other factor and when you get into you know, I'd send anybody to YouTube to watch Freddie King because as a live performer I think he's he's the top of the heap he's just a volcano yeah. of soul yeah it's just it's just pouring everywhere around him and the dynamics and the space in his playing is just profound it's profound um the only equal I would say he has and he's a little bit cooler but definitely, just as important to me as Johnny Guitar Watson, another Texas blues man mm-hmm. who, who had this evolution from being a straight blues guy to being like a funk soul blues guy.
1: Right. They both had that journey,
0: Freddie and Johnny. They both
1: had that kind of journey. You know? Yes, absolutely. And that was the thing that really grabbed me too. I mean, you know, it's like I said, those all these chapters that Freddie had was this, you know, that those early things and, and the straight ahead blues and, the, and, then, the, and then into the seventies with the funk kind of soulful stuff. That's just uh, really just captured me in a way that I, I just was like, wow, to blend these two worlds like this, you know, which really aren't that far away from each other at all, but to, to, to sew it all together like that was just, just captured me in a way that I had never been before. You know, it's just amazing. Yeah, he's just, he's definitely my favorite, without a doubt. Um, you mentioned that, you know, you're born in Michigan, obviously. You, you lived in Milwaukee, Pennsylvania, you mentioned, before going to New York. When I think of geography in a, in a, in a guitar player, um, how much does did, did the geography and the places that you were at the times that you were how much of that affected who you became or did it at all? Well, it's a really, that's a great and very pertinent question to where I'm at
0: uh, creatively and as a human being right now. So I'm, I was born, in, as you mentioned, December 28th, 1976. So I'm 44 years old. Um, you know, I've got two boys. I've got two little kids. Um I, you know, I had a decade or so, a little less, with Greg Alman, and now I'm playing in my other favorite band of all time, Little Feet. Um, and then with the pandemic, you know, shutting down my entire live performing career, uh, this, this album, the this solo album I've been working on for the last three years, on and off, it started to take a new shape where I started looking at the songs I was writing and being the man I am at the time I am in my life, I was very reflective about my childhood. And there's even a, if, if people get a physical copy of this album, um, which people often don't these days, but if you do, when it comes out at the end of September, there's a photo montage that I made myself at the end that shows pictures of me, you know, shooting at 22 with my grandfather on Lake Michigan. And, uh, you know, then like going through to my first high school band in Pennsylvania, or it would have been freshman in high school band. And then going into my years, playing with, you know, these guys who changed my life on the Chitlin circuit and at Milwaukee High School of the Arts in Milwaukee. Um, you know, most of them you have never heard of, like Stokes and uh, Milwaukee Slim, Lee Gates, Willie Higgins, Harvey Scales is probably the most, you know, the only guy who had like a storied career out of any of those guys. But they shaped my whole life. There's pictures of them. Um, so, so, I'm really looking back and, and being reflective at this time And I'd say it's just seismic, you know, the fact that I'm from Michigan. Um, Mm -hmm. And and as I mentioned early in our conversation today, you know, it kind of went there quickly, Um, is, uh, you know, that origin story of mine, something that's never left me. I mean, I've lived in New York City since I was 20, but at the same time, um, you know, those years, you know, from being born to being 20 years old, I mean, you're pretty much, you know, the die is pretty much cast at that point. You know, there's, you're gonna learn a lot, but in terms of who you are in your soul, and especially as a musician, the die was really cast really early for me. So I'd say it was integral to who I am. And also the fact the age that I am, that I'm 44. I mean, growing up playing music in an analog world, I mean, it's the biggest advantage I have. Yeah. Having, you know, jamming and hanging with Hubert Pine Top Perkins, Mel Rhine, um, Buddy Miles, all those guys, and all those guys before I was 18 years old where I was playing with them all the time and traveling with them and getting stories and lessons and gigs and I mean, you know, and then having to go to record stores to find records and then taping the records for people and, you know, you'd sit with one record, you know, I used to have one cassette that I would make of one record that you couldn't find anywhere that wasn't reissued on anything like Grant Green Alive or Donnie Hathaway Live mm. or... Bobby Womack, you know, like uh, all these different records we used to go find. Johnny Guitar Watson—you can only find like three of his records on CDs. So you'd have to go find the vinyl. You go down to, you know, you go down to Chicago. You go to the jazz record mart. Every every time you can, when you got some money from a gig, that's what I used to do when I was sixteen, you know. And I and I would go in there, and I was like creating this whole, um, you know, sort of library, this private library of this, these lost. Uh, gems and, and they became my life and one album would be one album could be two months of my life I mean shit Donny Hathaway live that was probably half a year of my
1: life where I was only listening to maybe two other records that doesn't happen anymore yeah, yeah. yeah all right. those things I detailed you know going to the up and under and you walk in and there's these guys
0: and there's ten people watching the jam session and all these people like Hubert comes through to have a free drink and, and you as a 16 year old can go up to the
1: guy who fucking came up with you know all these riffs that changed you know Jimi Hendrix's life and mm-hmm. you can ask him how
0: he came up with them in a bar I mean this, this doesn't happen anymore mm-hmm. it's it's I'm extremely extremely fortunate for that aspect of my childhood it's my ace in the hole every day
1: do you think that and, and I thought about this when you were when you were saying because that really struck me do you think that because we no longer live in that analog world, that we won't see those type of, or have those type of experiences again? No.
0: Um, if I, I will say this. I believe, and I'm, I'm going to try to say this in as positive a way as I can, um, I think on on your best day, if you're playing rock and roll or blues or any of these classic American music right now, it doesn't matter what it is, country, jazz, I think on your best day you're yo yo ma. Mm-hmm. You, on, the, on, the, on your best day, you're not Bach. Okay. It's it's just we're in a post Renaissance period of music right now right. in America. Right. Okay? So in terms of these styles, so if you're playing an electric guitar with period correct PAFs and a tube amplifier with a guy playing a Hammond with a Leslie and a drummer and a bass player and some horn players, I mean, you know, you're basically the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not you're not Billy Eilish. You know, and, and and I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, when the best records come out these days that I love, usually it's like the Anderson Pack Bruno Mars thing and it's like they're in the clothes from the 70s, they're playing the music from the 70s, Mm -hmm. they're using the chord changes of the 70s. I think the shit is brilliant and I love it to death, but it's like that ain't Purple Haze, man, to us now. I mean, I think honestly if Jimi Hendrix was alive now, he'd be working at Google, you know, designing some kind of apps or some shit. I don't think he'd be playing guitar. Mm -hmm.
1: I mean. You know, electric guitar would be like you know would have been like him picking up a cello back in the day. Instead right. of a guitar. Well, you know, it's interesting. And it's interesting you say that too because you, you know that you brought up the Bruno Mars thing, and and the, when I when I heard all these all the tracks that they've released thus far from from that, I was like, wow, these songs are great. But they, they certainly are great songs. They're yeah. great songs, and they're recorded well, and they're performed really well, and they're. But to me, they're snapshots. Of what was, and they're not like you said we're in this po- we're in this post Renaissance period. Are we going to have another Renaissance? And I mean, what will that be? Well,
0: I mean, you're asking the wrong guy. You got to get a twenty year old on your show. I mean, I you know, I I love Billie Eilish, okay, and I, that's all I wanted to mention earlier. I feel like she's an original artist who's great. I like Lord stuff. I think there's a lot of really important voices like them, especially female voices now. You know, I, I love that Childish Gambino record that Donald Glover did. I feel like that was like, that record, and it's, it's basically an oldie at this point, it was what a few years ago came out, uh, Awaken My Love. I feel like that record is one of the most important records that's come out in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got a throwback element to it. It certainly tips its hat to Fly Stone and Funkadelic and all that stuff. Yeah. But there's lyrical themes and there are uses of technology and recording on that record that are very modern. And I love that. And that's why my new record Rust Belt, you know, I did it with my producer engineer Charlie Martinez, and Charlie is always on the cutting edge of like what's going on with Pro Tools and Logic and plugins. And by the way, so are people like Mitchell Froom and Chad Blake, who are older than us. You know, there's a lot of records you're hearing now that you think are analog that are completely fucking digital. Right. And that's the, that's the Rust Belt album. I mean, we did it all in Logic and Pro Tools. I have a few guitar solos on that record that I did during the pandemic when the studio went out of business that we used and I couldn't get in the studio. So I did them with plugins. And I'm going to tell you, man, I am like the most analog dude and I've had great guitar players, I've sent previews of the record to call me and ask me what mics and amps I'm using. And I'm literally just <laughs> plugging my guitar into a fucking plug-in. <laughs> so, you know, the tools aren't really very important. Um, it's more like what you hear, how you want to hear it, how you want to arrange it. And the biggest deal is, like, what does the song need? That's right. the only thing that's important. What is going to make the song
2: speak? Right. And... Um, you know, I—that's—I'm kind
0: of old school in terms of like I love a rhythm section. Like the one thing about Rust Belt, I can tell you that I've done on every one of my records is the rhythm section was done completely live.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and in my past records, even my last three solo albums, Saving Grace, Brickyard Band, Anti Up—I mean, ninety to a hundred percent of the lead vocal and the rhythm guitar are done live on all those albums. Mm, in cool. other words, I didn't overdub the lead vocal. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the rhythm section and the lead vocal live Uh, this record was much more you know like I said like piecing it together Um, so look I mean is there going to be another Prince I mean in our lifetimes probably not I mean we'd be lucky to get a Prince let alone a Jimi Hendrix you know or a Miles Davis I mean you know and if they do come along man I don't think you and I are going to be able to hear it
1: see that's the thing yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You're you're probably right. You're probably right because we're we're we have this all, our own sort of fixation. Yeah, that's kind of a bummer.
0: It doesn't have to be. Look at Glenn Gould. I mean, that's one of my favorite sounds in the history of music. Yeah. Right. Go go go. Put on. You want to feel good about where rock and roll is at? Go put on. You know, Glenn Gould playing any Bach stuff. You know, go put on him doing, uh, uh, you know, any of these books, like Well-Tempered Clavier or, uh, you know, Goldberg Variations, and listen to him swing the shit out of that music. Yeah. I mean, just put so much heart and soul and feel. And those are, like, top ten records for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're right up there with the Beatles and Miles Davis and Hendrix and every and Little Feet and the Allman Brothers and all the stuff that I put in the top 10. You know, is that Glenn's right up there, man. And what's he doing? He's playing fucking ancient music, but he's putting his own twist on well, it. Well, see, and that's And it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's how I felt when I first heard Chris Whitley. You know. Oh,
0: man. You're you're touching my heart bringing up that name. You know, that's one of my heroes. Yeah,
1: I mean, when I first when I first heard him, I was like I was like, "Wow, this isn't blues. This is something else. This is like Jack Kerouac meets Bob Dylan meets Muddy Waters meets Robert Johnson."
0: I'm so I'm so thrilled that um, you bring him up. I mean, we could do a whole other podcast just about Chris Whitley with me. Yes, yeah. I mean, i I was in I was a freshman in high school in Pennsylvania and I was having a really, really, really tough time as a kid. I I had a lot of hard knocks as a kid. And you know, Living With The Law had just come out, and man, I was like, at the time, I hadn't come into my own yet, and I was very socially isolated in high school, and I'm sure everyone listening and you can relate to like how desperate that can feel. Mm -hmm. And that record for me was like, probably what Billie Eilish is like for a teenage girl mm. now, was living with the law for
2: yeah. changed my fucking life. Yeah. I mean, I used to listen to it on cassette every day going to school, all day at school every day, and lucky for me,
0: uh, my parents took me to see him uh, to, at, to the Trocadero in Philadelphia. We drove all the way to Philly, and I saw him live oh, right cool. before I moved to Milwaukee That's when I was cool. about 14 or 15. And it changed my life, man. I mean, I, I, he became, like, him and Jeff Buckley Grace, which was
2: a couple years after that. Yeah.
0: Those guys are my modern, to this day. And I would add Paul Weller to that as well, his, his record Wildwood that came out yeah. a couple of years, like, around Grace, too. Those three guys were my modern heroes.
1: They were my modern Lowell George, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Dwayne sure. all- Dwayne Allman. they were my modern version of that, that because makes, those were new records.
1: Yeah, that makes you know? total sense. That that's that's such a uh, that's such a great way to to contrast to, to draw the line between that that totally makes sense. Did you get to see Chris at all in Manhattan?
0: No, we I mean, I think, you know, he he was well, I mean, certainly alive, but I you know what? To be honest with you, like after living with the law the next couple records, like Terra Incognito and those, it was like uh Din of Ecstasy, like there would be like a couple songs that I would get super attached to. Right. But I right. did I, I and I looking back on it, I'm I'm really I'm really furious at myself because I abandoned it like everybody else did. <laughs> and um and and you know what? I was so fucking wrong because you know, when I got into making like my second record, Analog Monologue, and shit, you know, Chris and I were ships passing. Cause I was, I was living in Manhattan. I, I was living in the East Village, eventually Brooklyn. I was recording in Cold Spring, you know. I mean, we were ships passing with him going to make those later records. Yeah. And it wasn't until, it, I, to be honest with you, it wasn't until Chris was sick. Um, and then I didn't get a chance to see him that I started really getting in back in. And then I started getting back in to to Din and the Dirt Floor and all the stuff. And I was going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He was doing it the whole time. It was almost like somebody who was into the Miles Davis Quintet. Yeah. And then he went to Bitches Brew and you were like, eh, all right. Yeah. And then, like, 20 years later, you go, fuck. Yeah. That was the shit.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I got. I, yeah, so I like, was still so in so New York. I was still in New York at that time, and I would see him at the Knitting Factory. Um, oh God, another place in the in the in the West Village. I can't remember the name. Village something. Village. Uh, I can't remember Village, the name. Gate? Village Gate. Thank you. Very good. So I'm at the Village Gate the night that Bloomberg had had uh, passed the smoking ban in clubs. Oh yeah. And yeah, he, of course. He kept on lighting up between each song going, fucking Bloomberg. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> but he would light up and he goes, you're not going to rat me out, right? And everybody was like, no, we're not going to rat you out. We laugh and he smoked between each song. He was chain smoking like crazy. Um, I mean,
0: between, between those two mayors, between Giuliani, I mean, God, you know, he's, I mean, Giuliani now is like a,
1: Oh, let's not Music go there. Let's not even he's like a,
0: a demonic he's like a demonic cartoon <laughs> now, but I mean, when you think about him doing the when you think about him doing this, the um the band on dancing and <laughs> when, Man, when, I, when I, I mean seriously, this is like some serious like Weimar Republic shit that he <laughs> did when I moved to New York. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Bloomberg. I mean, the smoking thing—that was actually great. I mean, I know for Chris, it wasn't. No,
1: for Chris, was it was definitely not. Definitely an additive, I mean, it killed him smoking. You yeah, know. Yeah. But but
0: the thing is, is that you know uh, that that ban on dancing was was much 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 more detrimental to the city's culture. And oh. also, they used to they used to bring sound meters into the clubs.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. They do that here in Austin. You know, they do that here in Austin. Huh? <laughs>
0: Well, at least you can park in front of the club
1: there. It's absurd. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but get, getting back to New York for you for a second, when you you came to New York when you were 20, right?
0: That's right.
1: Yeah. So at 20 years old, you're still—I mean, you're still pretty impressionable, you know. And I found living in New York, growing up in New York, the the city. The, the, the pulse of the city, the energy of the city, it, it definitely inf- inf- infected and affected the way I played, just like it did when I was living in the UK, when I was living in London, and now living here in Austin. Uh, th- that geography, did you find that New York uh, made you, what did it do to your playing?
0: Well, I mean, it's the, in one word, jazz. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like in New York. Once you're, once you're on a gig, right? You get you get your first gig. Right when you're on your first gig, you realize that everybody in the band can play every style. Right. But the commonality, as in all, you know, let's say all American roots music is rooted in the blues for sure, right?
1: Right. right.
0: But in New York it's more rooted in jazz than it is in blues. Oh, yeah. it's specifically, specifically more rooted in bebop jazz Mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, After all, bebop jazz was, you know, invented in Harlem, uh, arguably at Minton's Playhouse, which is about five blocks from where I live. People don't realize how, I think in general, realize how important my adopted home that I've lived in for 10 years of Harlem is to American music because you got to realize Harlem is where Jimi Hendrix spent a couple years before he went to the UK and he was playing with Cornell Dupree and King Curtis right. and all these guys when he was living in Harlem. You know, he used to live about 20 blocks from where I live. Charlie Christian used to live in Harlem and play at Mittens about mm-hmm. five blocks mm-hmm. from where I live mm-hmm. currently. And, you know, arguably just the electric guitar alone you know, pretty much the, guitar, the electric guitar pretty much started with Charlie Christian and ended with Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. And that was all, you know, two Harlem residents, right? Yeah. You know, really got all their their education and training. So right. when you're talking about New York City, you know, that's what you're really talking about. Yeah, you're, you're talking about a place where these two geniuses who basically invented and perfected the guitar were trained. Yeah. And the thing got wrapped up in it is like, you know, and I'm telling you right now, when Jimi Hendrix you know, when Jimi Hendrix was in uh, New York City, he was playing on a King Curtis gig, he was playing jazz, he was playing blues, he was playing R and B, and that's what really informed the depth of his rock and roll music. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the thing about New York. It's it is a cultural cuisine art and it, and it is a stylistically a musical cuisine art but the jazz thing to me was what even though I went to high school of the arts which is a jazz school in Milwaukee and I I did do some gigs with with Mel Ryan who played with uh, played organ on all those West Montgomery records he was actually an adjunct professor at my high school lucky me um, you know it really came down to like when I was playing jazz in Milwaukee it was like in the school ensemble which was an amazing like six seven piece legit jazz ensemble but you know I would always kind of I was kind of the bad boy of the jazz program you know I had long hair and I used to smoke unfiltered cigarettes and (laughs) you know I would dress you mentioned Jack Kerouac I would dress like a beatnik because I was like obsessed with the beats Mm -hmm. and uh and all that stuff and like you know, but I, but my thing was, like, I didn't want to be a jazz guy. Like, there were some people who were really into jazz at the high school, but the ones who were usually who were really into jazz were, like, fusion guys. Mm. And to me at that time, and I, I've actually grown to really love and appreciate this music, but at that time when somebody was into, like, Weather Report or Chick Career or something, it was, like, absolutely the opposite of what I wanted to do with my entire life. Right. So... Unfortunately, it made me kind of rebel against jazz in general, but when I got to New York and I had to figure out how to support myself, I remember doing like, and you'll know all about this because, you know, you have a background here. I remember, you know, doing my first wedding gig so I could make like 500 bucks in four hours, right? Right. And, And, you know, doing this, and this is when I'm in my very early 20s, like maybe I was 21 or 22 and like I got on the cocktail hour, right? And all the musicians were like older musicians. And these are all guys who like play with Rod Stewart, shit like that, you know, they have like huge sideband gigs. So I was a little bit intimidated. I got on cocktail hour with like a pianist and the bass player was playing upright and they're literally calling like, you know, Chick Korea's Windows and like Wayne Shorter tunes and you know, I got, absol- I got my fucking ass handed to me at this fucking cocktail party. And it's like the waiters are passing around shrimp space and no one's paying any attention. And these guys are like playing the heaviest fucking jazz shit and playing the living shit out of it. Right. And I'm like left in the dust. And then I realized, oh, okay. Well, if I'm going to survive in New York and play the dance set at a wedding for three hours... I'm going to have to hang on this shit for an hour or I'm not going to get called back. Right. So there's no, like, (laughs) in New York, there's no distinguishing between, like, guys who play pop and guys who play blues, you know, or people who play all these different genres. It's like when you're on these gigs, whether you're playing in a bar or you're playing at a wedding, you are expected to play every genre of music extremely at the highest level. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: That's 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 the predicate. Yeah. And that's the first time I I realized. Well, if I'm going to live in New York to make to make a living, I can't really be a specialist anymore. And I'd say, it, honestly, it really fucked me up for a few years, to be honest with you, because it made me kind of lose my way, and it developed me as a musician much more in the long run. But I think until I hooked up with Greg Allman in 2008 when I met Greg our first conversation took me straight back to being 18 playing at the Up and Under and I I re-found myself again I was 30 years old at the time when I was 30 I found myself again and I became a specialist and I came back to rock and roll and I never looked back and that was who I was before I came to New York I was a rock and roller
1: right but but all those things had to happen for you to, to to get to where you are. It had to it had to go that way.
0: Yeah, and I'm extremely proud of all the records I've made. I mean, first with the Chesterfield, Henry Street Soul, which, you know, is something I'm extremely proud of. It was a, a very, very expensive and uh, thorough effort that Sean Dixon and I made with that. Um, you know, go, which that came out in 2000, two thousand one, you know, going right through to my I've got six solo albums now. Um, you know, I needed that experience in New York as a solo artist for sure. Yeah. Um, as far as as far as playing with Greg Alman and Little Feet, I gotta be honest with you, man, with in terms of just playing the guitar and singing with Greg or with Little Feet, I could have done it just as well at sixteen as I do it now.
1: Really? Yeah, for sure. Because it was such a part of your lexicon growing up.
0: I mean, it's my DNA that music.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: I, I grew up seeing it, I grew up seeing both those bands live from when I was about 10. Um, I, I studied, I could I could play all the parts except for the piano on Waiting for Columbus. Wow. You know, I learned when I was 11, 12. I'd have a four-track cassette recorder, and I'd learn Richie's drum part, and then I'd learn Paul's guitar part, Kenny's bass line, both
1: slide and I'd sing over it. I re I recreate the tracks, track by track. And wait yeah. For yeah. See, that's what I. That's, that's what true. I. That's what I got when I when I you know when I when I really started to sit down and listen to you. And listen to all the things you've done. I, I really, I, I said, wow, this is somebody. And I don't know if you subscribe to this this idea or not, but I said this is somebody who really has has done the work and and has done the what we you know quote unquote the ten thousand hours. You know, do you feel like that's the case?
0: I mean, I'd say. I I'd say 10 is conservative I'd go more with like 30,000 <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm one of the hardest workers you're ever going to talk to and and in, in music because my, my approach is that if you don't have a song don't turn on the equipment
1: yeah. and the hardest thing to do is to pick the song
0: arrange the song write the song Create the song. The interpreting is probably the ten thousand hours. The next twenty thousand hours is having a reason to.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I
0: and I struggle with that every day.
1: Yeah. Still. Yeah. I
0: mean, I, I we all do. You know, that's kind of the thing. Even when you're talking about, uh, you might start about struggling. I mean, look at Chris Whitley. Look at all those sort of incredible timeless to you and I
1: as fans songs he was writing with these albums that were selling 1,000 copies or something in the early 2000s right? Yeah. How how extraordinarily frustrating
0: and and look I mean you know my my career I've been extremely blessed I mean the main thing in my life is to have my family you know my wife who I've been with for over 20 years you know my kids and you know, And and I didn't have to succumb to substance abuse uh, the way Chris did. I mean, I certainly could have. Uh, still could. But it's like, I, I think I'd rather, you know, I, I've definitely, my solo albums, I've never been signed to a record label, okay? Um, I've never had an A&R person who could trick anybody into signing me. I've had plenty of major A&R people I mean, Ahmed Erdogan was a fan of mine when I was twenty, twenty-one. Um, he tried to get me signed. Um, you know, Russ Teitelman tried to get me signed, the legendary producer, a couple different times. Um, I've had some pretty illustrious people, you know, uh, vice presidents and A&R people for record labels fight. But um, the boardroom never gave me the thumbs up. so. I've made all my solo albums on my own. I mean, I've had financial investors, but I've never had a record label. And um, they've suffered commercially at an existential level. But I've made exactly the art I wanted to make. And one day, when I spin off this fucking planet, um, I will be very, very proud for my kids to have these
2: albums. Yeah. Because
0: because they are exactly what I wanted to say at the time I said them I can still put them on and there's flaws humanity is is about accepting flaws but they are exactly what I wanted to say the way I wanted to say it at that time so I feel great about what Charlie Martin has who's been with me for the entire ride as a producer and engineer I feel great about what we've accomplished with the Scott Sherrard Soul album. I, I feel in a, an enormous sense of pride and accomplishment, artistically. And I don't give a shit about the arts, about the, um, the art and commerce side of it. I only care about the artistic side of it uh, for my solo work. And look, it's been a luxury for me because, you know, I'm involved in education and American Roots Music, and that's helped help pay the bills over the years. Uh, and I'm honest with you. I've been extremely lucky that my, my heroes have somehow found me over and over again and asked me to be in their
1: bands. Yeah, I mean that's what's paid the bills. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue. Actually, let's talk about Rust Belt. This this record that's coming out into September. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump around the record and ask you some questions. I really wish I had the 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 I could play the record for everyone in its entirety so they could get the full picture. But you you help us fill in the cracks so the the album opens with a track called bad news to me when i heard it i was like wow this is a i mean how could you write the perfect opener for a record and a live set too it literally is the perfect opening for this for this record what was that when you when you first penned it were you like ah this is definitely gonna be the opener for the for the record
0: well thanks man we've been playing that the oldest song that I wrote on the record I think I wrote it about four years ago and it's been certainly with my band with Brett Bass and Eric Cal who are playing on that track with Craig Dreyer on Keys you know but with Brett and Eric we toured to support my Saving Grace album in 2018 as a trio and I'll tell you what man we, we burned up the road with that band we took a beating like a man over 40 should never take. (laughs) And we played that song on every gig. We never played a gig where we didn't play it. And it just kept getting longer and longer. And when you come here and play that live, it can be 12 minutes long, 10 minutes long sometimes, you know, with the ending. Um, So on on Rust Belt, we did like a five-minute-ish version of it, you know, and... uh, Did I think it was going to be the opening track? No. I wanted On the Run Again to be the first song. That's the second song now. Um, But Charlie Martinez, my producer-engineer, convinced me this is what you have to open the album with. They're companion songs. Um, Thematically, they're both about different, kind of like Jekyll and Hyde disillusionment. Um, Bad News is not as specific is On The Run Again. I'd say bad news is it's really about uh, male toxicity.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And uh,
0: it's it's not just about mine. It's kind of about male toxicity in general and being a man and trying to confront what that means. Right. And it's definitely, obviously, the negative side of it. I mean, it's in the title, right?
2: Right. On
0: The Run Again is, is more like kind of a it's a story song it's not just my story I mean it comes from an inspiration from my life I wrote it when I was on tour in the Midwest actually with my trio and it's really about trying to be a musician now that's kind of how it started and then it kind of turned into this whole um you know diatribe again about being a man about being a man right now and it's like how do you balance um you know, being in a relationship, and being someone who's passionate about what they do, and taking the risks that are required for both, simultaneously, how do you ask that that much from a partner, and from yourself, and expect it to not all go off the rails? Mm
2: -hmm. The whole album is about disillusionment, and loss,
1: and mourning is another theme that goes throughout the record yeah so um, yeah particularly uh there's the the track that really kind of like I was like whoa it was it was deep on all fronts it's, it's lush musically and a lyrical story the vocal is amazing it's really cinematic is Michi- Michigan Sunset yeah and
0: that's the second single from the album so you can actually hear that one on Spotify now as well as bad news was the first single uh, right. that you mentioned. Michigan Sunset I did a I did a seven minute EPK with my friend the director Scott Rosenbaum Now uh, that tells the whole story in detail with he put some beautiful visuals to, to an interview he did with me.
1: Is that on YouTube?
0: It is, yeah. Okay yeah, cool. you can look it up on YouTube or, or Vimeo, I think it's on both. Um, we we use it as a seven part series on Instagram and Facebook, too, we, we cut it into seven segments, um, you know, seven one-minute segments. But so that's the most personal song I've ever written. It's probably the most important song I've ever written for me. Um, you know, certainly the most, I think most people would think I would say My Only True Friend, but it's, My Only True Friend is the most important song I've written for the public and that I wrote for and with a friend, being Greg Almond. Michigan Sunset is really, this whole album is for me. It's not for anyone else. I did this album for me. This Mm -hmm. was a blood wedding. It was a blood wedding for me that I needed. And now I get to share it with with everyone and it gets to be yours. But it started as being mine. (laughs) And Scott Smith was a guy that I'm named after and he was the singer in my dad's rock and roll band in Detroit area in Michigan in the 60s. He was drafted in 69. Um, He tried to not go as a conscientious objector, but they made him serve. He decided to serve as a combat medic because he refused to kill anyone on principle. And he was actually tragically killed the day before he was supposed to come back home after serving a torturous tour of duty as a combat medic in the field. And uh, he bled to death on the battlefield after uh, taking a wound trying to save another soldier. And he was my parents' best friend, and he was a great singer, and the singer of my death band, and he was killed in, at 19 in a war that made no fucking sense, which is something we can all think about right now all over again with yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. And, you know... Uh, <coughs> Ironically, we released this single on the day that the pullout started, which was definitely not coordinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think Scott's story came through me one day, and I sat down and wrote the skeleton of the song in probably about 10 minutes and there Ah uh, shit. I didn't think I was going to write this song, and now I've got to write it. And I ended up playing this song in a very early form for uh, a really brilliant and legendary songwriter from Nashville named, originally from Texas, but he's been in Nashville for many years, named Gary Nicholson. And Gary is like one of my favorite songwriters, and he's a songwriter's songwriter, okay? You know, this is this is like me, you know, this is like me showing a guitar solo to Pat Metheny
2: or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, this is somebody who's going to look
0: right through it and just be like, dude, come on. And, you know, Gary doesn't pull any punches. He's also a Texan, so he's going to get right up your face and tell you what's going on. Gary, I should also mention you brought up Freddie King. Gary's high school band used to back up Freddie at dances.
2: And oh, stuff. wow. So,
0: Deep, deep character and I played this song for Gary and I showed him the lyrics and basically what he said to me was, he had some little notes about things that he would change and some advice and he said to me, he said, Scott you know, I'm not going to help you write this song and he goes, whatever you do don't ever let anyone else sing this song, this is your song and when he said that to me I said, all right, I got to take a page from, I was reading Robbie Robertson's biography at the time. And interesting thing was like that line, cold in my blood. That's something my grandfather used to say. It's from Michigan. And my people came from Canada, you know, where, where Robbie's people are from. So this all works into that Rust Belt thing, right? It's like I grew up across the water from where Robbie came from, it was a 10 minute drive you know, from where I lived in Dearborn to where Robbie was from. And he was Cold In My Blood in that, in that song, you know, in, uh, in uh, Katie Acadian Driftwood. And I realized that, you know, all those things were coming together and I thought about, well, how did Robbie write songs like Acadian Driftwood? And then I read in Robbie's biography how he talked about doing historical research to contextually understand his own people his people in the Acadian Driftwood were the people who you know, came up from New Orleans and ended up in Canada okay and my people came from Canada and ended up in Michigan
2: right
0: ships passing right yeah so I decided to research the Vietnam War and that's where I came up with the first verse of the song I changed the first verse first in December in 69 um Uncle Sam called on number one. All right, so that was me changing the lyrics based on historical fact. And the song became not only a dedication to Scott Smith, but I started going beyond that thinking about people like Gore Vidal, you know, authors of like historical fiction. And I started to to think, well, you know, if Gore Vidal can write about Lincoln, and basically turn it into a novel I can write about Scott and use historical facts to tell his story and then some alliteration to turn it into a bigger picture mm-hmm. and that, that's the story of writing that song it became a huge project and I've never written a song like that in my life
1: It's it's a mini movie <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I
0: was listening to a lot. I was listening to a lot of Warren Zevon when I was making this record. Who I used to play Warren songs with my dad when I was a kid, and he's one of my biggest influences. And I was thinking about now this. This is a little bit more tongue in cheek song, but Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner.
2: Uh huh.
0: So I'd say Michigan Sunset. If I had to pick two songs, it's Acadian Driftwood meets Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner.
1: Uh huh. I can see that I can That's see where
0: it is In terms of the musical arrangement Yeah You know uh, With a touch of With a touch of maybe uh, The, the ballad
1: side Of the Flying Burrito Brothers <laughs> Yeah it's It's incredibly visual It's incredibly visual I mean it, And uh, It was a perfect You know how sometimes You get Oh wow it's a great lyric and the, But the music is Is okay or oh my god that's amazing music but the lyric is just okay this is where you had you had kismet everything everything fired on all cylinders for this song well thanks man
0: I it took me three years to write that song it took me three years to write my only true friend with Greg Allman too wow I've learned I've learned some real lessons in the last ten years or so interacting with people like Bill Payne from Little Feet and Greg Allman and Levon Helm a number of years ago. I mean, with Levon, it was like, you know, 10, 10, 11 years ago. Um, You know, uh, interacting with these guys in sessions and on gigs and understanding what it takes to get there. Um, Another thing that happened a lot on this record, and this was influenced, we'll go back to Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm, who I played with a number of times uh, at his barn in Woodstock and recorded with him as well is the whole concept of like half time
2: double time for fields for songs right and Michigan sunset was always going to be
0: slow but there's another song called Anne Marie where it was slow for years and I recorded it twice and then I went back and I actually recorded the finished version in double time there was a lot of stuff like that on this record where we I would put my money where my mouth was and I re-recorded this this album twice half of it so this this album was, Rust Belt was extreme, you know, I'd say half of it was kind of flying off the cuff and then fixed later a little bit and the other half was like labored over, like I've never labored over songs and recordings in my life because again this record was to document people and relationships that matter to me, songs mm-hmm. for my wife songs for my grandmother-in-law, a song for Scott Smith, the man I'm named after, songs about mourning for people like Greg Alvin. Yeah. You know, it, it's like, you know, this record was like I was not going to fucking stop until it was right. And I'm and I going to tell you, the record is right. I've listened to it all the way through about five or six times in the last couple weeks since we finished mastering it and everything. And I can
1: just not tell you how good it feels you have done this that's I'm great. so proud of this that's great that's great the uh the title track uh and the reprise I dig I, I really dig the idea that you did the reprise in there and all this is such a killer track I, I really I just love the vibe of it it's it, it at points it almost kind of borders on like a psychedelia it's super cool it's it reminds me of, you know, on Electric Ladyland when Jimmy had Rainy Day, Dream Away, and then had Still Rainin', Still Dreamin'.
0: That's basically the inspiration for doing it twice.
1: Okay, cool. I didn't realize that. But that's kind of... kind you nailed it. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, that's what it reminded also, me of. And then, and then I'll also add, the other inspiration for doing
0: it was the Paul Weller album, Wild Wood, which is one of my biggest influences. Uh-huh. And every record I've made, I have referenced... The records, the artists I talked to you about earlier, Jeff Buckley, Grace, Chris Whitley, Living with the Law, and Paul Weller, Wildwood. Also, I would add, Bo Lobo's uh,
2: Colossal Head, and This Time. Uh-huh. And those records,
0: every record I've made with Charlie, we talk about, and Latin Playboys, we talk about those records every time we make a record. Yeah. So, on Wildwood by Paul Weller, he has an instrumental track, I think it's called brand new day or something like that that comes in and out of the record and it plays about a minute or two at a time what we did with rust belt the, the title track rust belt is so i was in the studio with eric calvin brett bass my my band and bass player and drummer and i said to them i said look i've got this this chord progression i've got an idea for a group and brett and cal have a very specific way of playing together, as most of the great rhythm sections do. Kalb in particular is kind of the master of that, I guess you could call it that James Gadsden style 16th note hi-hat thing that we know from like, all the stuff Gadsden did with like, you know, Express Yourself, and then with Bill Withers later. Kalb um, is like the master, the modern master of that groove. And I asked Cal to do his version of that 16th note groove with these kind of, you know, minor nine sus chords. I was
2: also thinking about Marvin Gaye who used to do tracks like this. I'm here my dear. There's a, Yeah there's a track that comes
0: back over and over. That's yeah. another one.
2: Yeah. Um so
0: so I said, Guys, just, just do me a favor. Let's just play this for like five minutes and then try Martin I Martinez and I are gonna do something with it later. I don't know what we're gonna do with it. One take played for five minutes, one three-chord progression, tucked it away and forgot about it. During the pandemic, I started sending the track around to musicians. So I sent it to Justin Shipper, who did all that really innovative, incredible pedal steel work all over the record. And I had Justin do a baritone guitar and a pedal steel, and I said, improvise, go nuts, do your whole psychedelic pedal steel thing. That became Rust Belt. And then that went on for about four minutes. And then we had Charlie Martinez made a drum loop out of what Eric Cow played and then he did all his crazy shit that he does with plugins to the drum loop. It's
2: all a very modern approach. Yeah.
0: Then then you'll hear a transitional moment on the first one where we go to the end of rising
2: tide, which is the next song on the record, right. and
0: you'll hear my friend Brian Brian Shirek play this Rhodes piano solo that Sounds like something you would have heard off a Zawinell
2: record or something. (laughs) That moment on on the Rust Belt track is, conceptually, I was trying to
1: get you from, that's me driving from the Midwest to New York City in 1996.
0: Okay. So you're going from the Midwest where you've got that track with the pedal steel and the baritone and this kind of like open fields and like wide open. You know, um, kind of like moody disillusionment, and then it kicks over to this kind of really modern, sort of jazz chaotic yeah.
1: thing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going so to ask you. I was going to ask you actually uh, on Rising Tide that that the 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 fuzzed out soloing that you're doing. It's all kind of fuzzed out. Are you? is that a plug-in or is that a box what are you using there
0: alright well I'm glad you asked and this is why wire well, notes were always so important but so there's a friend of mine who's literally one of the best guitar players on earth his name is Dan Littleton. he lives in Woodstock um, your listeners might know him from his work with Amy Helm um, he also has a band with his wife Elizabeth Mitchell and they're one of the best kids' music bands around, actually. They did some records with Dan Zanes, and they're very well-known in that work. They were made um, as uh, Dan Whittleton and Elizabeth Mitchell. But Dan is one of the most important guitar players of this era. And he lives in Woodstock, and not enough people know about him. And I asked him to play on my record, and Dan is the only guitar player who's ever played on a Scott Sherrard album besides I had my friend Connor Kennedy played on one song on the Brickyard Band album but that's about it Um, and Dan plays some Telecaster on a few tunes on Rust Belt and what you're listening to on Rising Tide is when you get to the end we have I went to Dan's studio in Woodstock and we plugged some guitars right into some old amplifiers and we faced each other, and we played a live guitar exchange over the track.
2: Ah. So this guitar
0: on one side is Dan, and the second guitar that's a little bit cleaner is me. And that whole thing is one take, unedited, and the only thing that's edited is we actually faded out at the end because we kept going. When the band track ends, we kept playing and we have a completely improvised chordal thing that I do that he plays over that ends the track.
1: That's super cool. I I, I it really it really captured my ear. I was like, Wow, what's going on here? This is so cool. What a you great want to
0: what I was, you wanna know what I was thinking about with rising tide? I really love that song. I'm very proud of that song and that track. That track I had a very specific mission with that track and the mission was to get Dan Wilton to play a guitar solo with me and to do a rhythm track that perfectly combined the vibes of funkadelic and Pink Floyd. I wanted to make a record on that track that sounded like funkadelic and Pink Floyd went to, went to the studio together and made a song. Mm-hmm and that's what we were going for with that and I I feel like we got we got pretty damn close to what that might sound like with how that whole thing is arranged
1: That's cool.
0: yeah I'm really proud of that track we had a lot of fun making it and you know like I said Dan is he's really important because he doesn't he always plays the song he always serves the song but that guy never ever ever plays a cliche it's, it's stunning. His phrasing is just... Everything about the guy, his tone, he's just so inspiring, and I I, I love him as a person, and I
1: just I can't say enough good things. It was an honor to have him on the record, to be totally honest with you. That's cool. That's great. Um, an- Another track that really kind of stood out, and it's it's a pretty straight-ahead track, is uh, Too Many Losers. Uh, I love the jazzy blues aspect, but you've got this... Freddie King tone on the guitar do you think that's a Freddie do you think that's a Freddie King tone I think it's a Freddie King tone
0: well there's this is a question of since we're since we're doing a talk show I'll talk about it but you know it's like Sometimes it's better not to know how, how they make the souffle. You
1: know what I mean? No, I'm not but, don't, don't you don't have to share any I'm, secrets if you don't want. I'm just saying it's no, I'm
0: gonna tell I'm gonna tell I'm gonna tell
1: you all of them. Okay. That's what's fun about these, these podcasts. So so that's
0: song, um you know, it's it's obviously about you know it's obviously about Trump, right? I mean it's gotta be obvious, right? <laughs> so so it's about Trump and everybody who surrounds him, and, <laughs> and every crooked, and every crooked ass politician, and every crooked ass motherfucker boss at your job and teacher who is an asshole who made things hard for you. And there's just always these fucking creeps, Harvey Weinstein. You know, it's just too many fucking losers are winners in this world.
2: Yeah.
0: And that's why I wrote this song. And it just. During the last few years in America, it was just like an endless fucking parade of beatings with these motherfuckers. And all of these motherfuckers. And that frustration led to me writing the song. And I wanted to write... I've written a lot of blues-based rock and roll songs because I think it's the most pure form of rock and roll, to be honest
2: with you. Right.
0: Shit, pegged by steely Dan is a fucking blues.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, you know, when you think about the most sophisticated rock songs, they're usually blues songs. Um so I kind of took the medium and, and I got one of my biggest inspirations vocally is Johnny Taylor. And I started getting that cheaper to keep her
1: she keep up. You know that song? Yeah, yeah. Day? Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So I started to get that Bobby Bland, Johnny Taylor thing in my head, and I thought, what? I don't want to make this an angry rock song. I don't want to make this an angry funk song. I, I want to, I'm gonna make. I'm gonna keep it cool. I want the band to be cool. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna get mad over that. And I I like that kind of contrast
1: in music. Yeah, because uh, yeah, because at first, at first blush, when you hear it, you don't, you not, you know, unless you're really sitting there and listening to the lyrics. But if you're just listening to the music, it's like, wow, this is very, very tight, very cool. You know, very smooth. And then you go back and listen to it again because I've listened to the record now five or six times. You you go ahead and you go oh oh okay all right I see what's going on well, here. Third,
0: I th- I think the third, I think I did a good job pacing the verses on that song because when you get to the third verse it really you know after 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 those after those and the guitar solos kind of smack you around um you know the third verse really drives it home you know where where's it safe in today's English game when your health is a business and the schools are a shame. Yeah. And everywhere you, and everywhere you go, some madman could be packing heat. We've gambled it away, resigned in defeat. Too many saints are turning into sinners. Too many losers are coming up winners. Right. That's something up right there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but but the thing is it's like we give it some time before we start before we start getting specific and I, I like the pacing but the guitar solo on that song, um, that's a plug in. There's no amplifiers
2: Oh wow! No mic-
0: and let me let me plug the plugin. It's called Scuff on the Amp. It's about 150 bucks, and I use the deluxe, the brown deluxe setting, and I set up two of them, and I use ribbon mic settings, and I pull the mics in certain positions, and I use the G twelve sixty five selection speaker cabinets that I use in real life. And um, I do put a Strymon reverb unit pedal and an Origin Effects Revival Drive for distortion in front, which is kind of cheating because those two pedals do a remarkable amount to a guitar signal.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: so and then the guitar on that song and that song only for the solo is a B and G guitar and they're out of Israel, and they sent me a, um, we're trying to come up with a... With
1: you there? Okay. It's, uh, it's
0: fully, it's, it's not fully hollow, but it's like, it's not semi-hollow either. It's got a block, but not much of a block, so it's really resonant, and it has these loud, super, super microphonic P90s, that they wound over there, and
1: uh, it's a pretty aggressive guitar sound on that song. Yeah, no, it's killer. I, I, it, it was a standout for sure, absolutely. Um, another one that I really dug with a New Orleans kind of a vibe uh, was uh, "Ain't Gonna Worry." You there? Sorry, I'll ask you for a second. I'm I'm in the bad
0: cell area for about one minute
1: here. Okay, we'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> Another track that uh, I really dug was uh, that New Orleans tip uh, kind of thing they had called "I Ain't Gonna Worry." All right,
0: so so it, it it could be New Orleans, but it's not. So that is a cover. It was written by a singer, songwriter, producer, arranger named Tommy Tate and your listeners probably don't know Tommy Tate I mean shit I didn't know who Tommy Tate was until I was on tour in Perretta, Italy with Carla Thomas and I was on a package tour doing my show with a house band and I was opening for Carla and we ended up singing Tramp a couple times together which is one of the greatest thrills of my entire life was getting to stand in for Otis Redding with Carla Thomas um Carla and her sister Van Eats, who is on tour with us that is another great singer, um, one night we were out to dinner in Peretta and they started talking about this 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 cat Tommy Tate. And I said, Who's Tommy Tate? And they go, Oh no It's one of those moments. This used to happen to me a lot when I was a teenager. With the older cats, you know. And I was like, Oh shit. Take me down the rabbit hole. So I ended up finding out that this guy, Vastai Jackson, was out playing guitar with us. Great guitar player. He was actually Johnny Taylor's MD and played on Johnny's records on Malico. So I was talking to Vastai one night and I said, yo, what about Tommy Tate? He goes, man, Tommy Tate? He's like, Tommy Tate was a genius. He's from Mississippi and he was one of the arrangers and writers for Malico for Bobby Bland, ZZ you know, all those 70s Malico records. And he told me, he's like, you gotta check, you gotta check out his stuff on Coco, the Coco label. So lucky for me, next day, dial up on Apple Music, there it is, Tommy Tate, Coco Records. So Tommy, his first swipe of being a solo artist, he actually went to Muscle Shoals and recorded at a studio not with the Swampers Not at Fame Not at Muscle sound. Right With some With some Unanimous group of cats I don't know who they were I can't figure it out And Man I tell you what This was like late 60's This cat Was the most Singing Playing Writing Arranging Motherfucker I mean He's right up there With Donny Hathaway And um All the cats Man I mean Just had the whole Whole package and I ain't gonna worry. It's one of the songs from that Coco compilation I got. And I encourage anybody, you know, go go get that, go get get it up on your streaming platform. Go listen to that Tommy Tate Coco sessions and listen to his version. On I ain't gonna worry. It's gonna tear your throat out. That shit is funky as hell.
1: That's a killer tune.
0: <laughs> Thanks, man. Tommy Tommy was a great writer. He was a great singer and a great player
1: that's cool so I was looking at I was looking at the um, Little Feet website and I see that there's gigs coming up well
0: you know the Delta variant it ain't gonna get us forever probably so um, we do have a Northeast tour Um, we will be touring the uh, we'll be touring the Believer in this so I have a good feeling that it's going to happen. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got a lot, a lot of gigs next year. Yeah. So pray for us and pray for this country. And, uh, you know, I can tell you in 2022, Little Feet's going to play a lot of shows. And they are going to be very, very exciting shows without me giving up the
2: ghost. Yeah. But
0: there's going to be there's going to be some themes. There's going to be some special guests. There's going to be a
1: huge, huge celebration of the Little Feet legacy coming your way. Yeah, I can't wait, man. That's another one of those. That's another one of those guitar players. When when he passed away, I was just completely devastated. Lowell was a, 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 on such a different level, on such a different plane. Of, of uh, approach and intention. That's the thing. It was his, his, Lowell's intention towards music and towards the instrument was completely different than anything I had ever heard in my life. It was just so fascinating. I think it must well, be. In-
0: also, no, but with Lowell, you know, for me as a kid, like a white Midwestern kid, when I heard my first Little Feet record, which was waiting for Columbus and Salem Shoes both, because my dad used to play easy to slip and stuff. I used to play will in and easy to slip with him. And, but then when I saw a picture of Lowell George, I was a fat, white, middle-class kid, okay, in the Midwest. And when I heard Lowell and I saw will, it was very different than when I I heard and saw Jimi
2: Hendrix, mm-hmm. right?
0: Yeah. When I heard and saw Jimi Hendrix, I said, this is the greatest artist of all time. I'm fucked. When I heard and saw old George, I said, wait a second. This is one of the greatest artists of all time, and he looks like me. <laughs> I might be able to do something with my wife with this. Yeah. You know, he, he was like, he was kind of, you know, for me, He became very personal, and when you get into the catalog and you get into songs that I discovered as a child, as a child, when you get into songs like
2: Trouble, and you
0: get into songs like Heartache, and you get into songs like Long Distance Love, I mean, that guy reached right into my fucking soul, man, when I was a child,
2: yeah,
0: and... I saw Little Feet on the Let It Roll Tour a number of times and they just saw him with Richie and they just became along, the, along with the Allman Brothers I had the same feeling with the Allman Brothers you know but the thing was when I heard and saw Greg it was different because you know I, we used, to, I used to joke with him about this I mean Greg was like a matinee item you know and he was like this super handsome blonde you know um, God you know Well, it was not that you know Greg wasn't doing songs like, like Trouble. Greg wasn't doing songs like with those kind of lyrics and those kind of, you know, those kind of Gonzo. You know, they're like a Gonzo rock band. Little Feet. I mean, they they, they kind of made what what Frank Zappa was doing cool and bluesy. You know, they had this intellectual Hunter S. Thompson edge. Right. And that was what I was into. Also, I was into Mad Magazine. I was into Hunter S. Thompson and Kurt Vonnegut just as much as I was into Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Duke Ellington and Count Basie when I was 12. And they were the band, Little Feet was the band, you know, that pulled that all together. They pulled that, they pulled that whole milieu of being who I was into a sound and a style. And they reached out to you and they said, their music said to me, you know, um, shit, man, follow follow your dream, you
1: know? Well, I mean, to think about it, think about it, a a, a band that that can do a song like Willin and and also do a song like, you know, um, oh God, uh, Time Loves a Hero. I mean, opposite ends of the spectrum. And it was all the yeah, same. Two, and it was two very all, different writers too. Yeah, but but all the same band, and 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 it and it made sense. Once again, melting pot, right? That's yeah. What, and
0: also, with you got these bands, and I tell you, man, it's still my dream. I'm going to tell you right now. This this Scott Gerard solo album that you have in your possession is the last Scott Gerard solo album that's going to be released as an album for sure, because. I, I am I am in Little Feet as a band member and I am one of the lead singers and writers for Little Feet now. Right. And I'm putting my entire I am putting my entire being into this band because I love these guys and I love their music and I love them all as people and I think with Tony Leone now on drums too, I think we're gonna be doing extraordinary things for you guys and for each other. But I'm I want to be in a band before I die. Yeah. And besides being in Little Feet, you know, I also want to have a side project where I'm in a band because that's where I'm happiest. The Greg Alvin band was a band. Yeah. I mean, Greg was the boss on the books. Right. But he ran the band like a like it was a band. It was a democracy. And that's the only kind of bands I can be in. I'm not good at being a side man. I'm shit at it. And as a solo artist. I think I excel in the studio. I feel like I've had it told to me by a lot of different producers and musicians from the 60s and 70s that if I had had a career in the 60s and 70s, my albums would have been well-received by artists, certainly. Um, But my favorite music in rock and roll, when it comes to the music that came after the founders is Whittlefeet, the band, the Allman Brothers, NRBQ, most Lobos, those are the best acts. And what is the common thread? The sum, you know, is not greater than the individual. It's, they're all great writers, they're all great singers, they're all great arrangers, they're all great producers. All boats rise. So that's, I hope that besides doing this with my heroes, the guys who happen to be the age of my father now. Um, I'm trying to learn everything I can from them. But besides that, I think in rock and roll, in jazz, in blues, whatever, American Roots music style, we've got to find a way back to that, man. Yeah. And, and I'm all about it. I The reason I love being in Little Feet, besides the honor of it, is it's a democracy man it's like hey man you sing this song you know that's great play this solo that's great now you sing and I feel I'm like excited that Tony Leone can sing a song or two you know I'm excited to listen to Bill sing I'm excited to listen to Fred sing Sam I'm excited about sharing the spotlight it is truly inspiring to do that that is the spirit of my music I tried to do that with a group called the Brickyard Band your listeners can find a record it ended up becoming a solo album because i couldn't get everybody on the same fucking page because everybody's a fucking mercenary now <laughs> but but i'll tell you what that band that i did the brickyard band in new york that was a band and my model was little feet for that band i told them all i said we're gonna be little we're gonna do a version of what little feet did and really it centered around moses true being one of my favorite singers Songwriter, drummer, keyboard players, and I encourage your listeners to check that record out as well because I feel like it's a very important album. And it became a solo record because I was the only guy who was booking the gigs and doing the email list and doing anything really. Everybody else just wanted to show up and get paid.
2: Right.
0: You know, I was I was paying to put ads out, and paying for Facebook ads. And paying for people for publicists and all this shit. It wasn't a it wasn't an all in situation. Um, but musically on that one record I think we captured some of the idea of how that how a band should work. But I, I, that's my next project is to it'll be a side project for now while we get Little Feet up and running. That's my main artistic focus probably for the next four or five years or beyond. We'll see how we do. But I would really like to be in a real band um, of singer-songwriters yeah. before I spin off the earth. Yeah. You know, that's my dream. I'm done with the solo thing. It's, it's agony, to be honest with you. <laughs> the, only part, the only part of being a solo artist that I adore, and I mean adore, is making records with Charlie Martinez. Right. It's, making records with Charlie Martinez is my favorite consistent artistic act um, of my life. He's just... An amazing collaborator, and it's such a sandbox to climb into every time. And I love recording. I love making albums. It is my favorite medium. Um, promote, you know, promoting an album. You know, doing all the work that goes into it, and the, you know, hey guys, it's Scott on TikTok. Will you please come to my show? You know it's agony bro I'm just gonna be straight up with you Yeah. fucking agony uh, I, I, when you do it with when you do that with a band though it's not yeah like doing promotional shit with little feet is fun as hell it's cause you're kinda all in it together and you can all joke about it and you can conceive ways to do it when you're a solo artist and your band is like how much does the gig pay and where is it and you know and everybody's got their hand out and you're like employing everybody and you're like Trying to connect with people online. It's, it's murder on your soul, bro.
1: It's yeah. Murder. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm super excited about the whole Little Feet thing because, you know, it was kind of when, when Paul passed away, it was kind of like up in the air, like, okay, what's going to happen now? So well,
0: it, it, I can tell you in the Little Feet camp, it, it wasn't up in the air because my first gig, I set up in my first sound check in November of 2019 to meet
2: everybody for the first time right? in Little Feet and
0: I got a phone call from my friend Jay Cullen, who plays sax in the horn section he says Scott we're driving over to the gig uh, we just found out that Paul Barrera died so my first time meeting everybody was to say I'm sorry about your friend can we run a couple songs before the show Holy shit! no
1: rehearsals, no rehearsals. Jesus Okay, and I had a book of
0: thirty songs that I had to learn, and I was singing a number of songs too, singing about a half dozen tunes on the gig originally. Damn. Um, and we went on stage, and Bill Payne grabbed the mic, and he said, in a packed house, he goes, "Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've lost our friend Paul Barrere," and then I, and then we played the first song of the show, and at the end, at the end of the gig, it was. I, it was one of the most profound moments of my life. I mean, I played Greg Allman's last show with him in Atlanta, Georgia, in the band shell, on the anniversary of Dwayne Allman's death.
2: Oh my goodness.
0: Was the last was Greg Allman's last show. I played that show. I played Levon Helm's last show with him as his guitarist in his barn with Los Lobos as the opening act and the special guest on the set. And I left Levon in what would become, essentially, his deathbed with Otis Lobos around him, okay? So when I came into this moment with my heroes in Little Fee and losing one of my heroes, Paul, and them losing their friend, I had a lot of ammunition. I had a lot of emotional um, work that I had done around this process with music. And how to go into sort of a shamanistic communal
1: headspace? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you ama- know, it's, it's, it's amazing. that I you were actually. There. It was amazing that you were actually able to do that because some people would just kind of cu- fold like a card table, you know, in, so in this situation. I, right,
0: I, I drove right into it, and I remembered Greg losing his voice halfway through the last gig and not understanding why. I remembered Levon leave-on dentures falling out of his mouth onto the snare drum because his spine was in so much pain mm. that his spine was in so much pain and full of cancer that he, he clamped his jaw and had it fall onto the drum set. And he grabbed the dentures and threw them back into his mouth and grabbed his sticks and kept playing a fucking two-and-a-half-hour show. Wow. And I thought about what it means to play this music to those guys. Okay. And I looked in their eyes and I knew what was going on. You know, I Greg was family to me. And I'd say, you know, I was definitely not I played with Levon a handful of times. But, you know, I'm friends with his daughter Amy and and everybody in the band are, are good friends of mine. And I'm part of the family and it, it I looked at them and I said, We're gonna we're gonna do this. Yeah. And they, were like, and they were like, fuck yeah, we're gonna do this. And we got out there and we played that show with Lil Feet. And I got to the end of the gig and we were gonna do a bow together. And before the band came to the front of the stage, Bill Payne walked all the way across the stage to me and he shook my hand in front of the fans. And he said, "Motherfucker, you know our music. And for me, that was one of the most important moments of my musical life because to, to play that show, get an ovation from the fans, nobody left. <laughs> I was like, is everybody gonna leave? Like, what's gonna happen? And then have Bill do that in front of the fans, in front of the fans, and take a bow together. And when I went back in the dressing room at the end of the gig, we just knew. I mm. mean, the management at the time didn't want it to happen, you know? I don't think they wanted me in the band, but the band do.
2: Yeah. At the
0: end of that show, they came up to me and they looked at me. They hugged me and they shook my hand and they said, "Yeah, man, we're gonna play a lot together."
2: That's great. You know,
0: this is this, this is it. So, you know, talking about you know high-fiving Freddie on on the way out of the womb, and you know, you know, at birth, you know, I was I was lost for a day, you know, they gave my mom the wrong baby. For real? And uh, yeah, <laughs> and my mom smelled me and she said, "This is not my baby." And she argued with the nurses for a long time.
1: And eventually, I was found in the corner of the nursery, and they brought her the correct baby. Oh my,
0: my parents, God! My parents, my parents were told by several doctors that they would never have a child. Okay, and. When I was born, it was completely against all science. The, the doctors could not explain how my mom became pregnant. And after I was born, I'm an only child, they were never able to conceive again, and they tried. But that's kinda, literally from when I was born, man, this is how my whole life has been, is these really cosmically fucked up intersections. And I, I'm i not saying, you know what I mean, like, some people have trouble with purpose in life. I've never had tr- I've had a lot of trouble in life. A lot. But I have never had trouble with purpose because I've been thrust from the fucking moment that I came out of the womb with so many left, left field, as we all do. But mine became very musically oriented towards my idols consistently. And when I got to this occasion with Little Feet, it was just It was just kismet. It's like, if there's any argument for things all lining up correctly in my life as a musician, it was that particular moment. Um, Because if it hadn't have been for all the guidance I had, going right through to Greg, being the most significant, profound. I mean, I talked, I've talked about this a lot in interviews, but I, you know, right before I went on and did that gig with Feet. And before Bill was gonna to announce to the fans that Paul had passed away, they didn't know. It hadn't been announced publicly that, nobody could have looked it up on their phone at that point, even. I said, I, I had a moment with myself before I went on stage, before I went, before I huddled with the band. And I sat in a room and I talked to Greg for two minutes. You know, Greg was best friends with Paul George, they were really tight, and I said, Greg, I don't know if you're having a beer with wool right now because you both can at this point. But if you've got anything to give me, man, <laughs> if, if there's any fucking afterlife, like if you're gonna show me a sign that 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 you're with us, this is it. I gotta go out there and sing. You know, I gotta go out there and sing. Rocket in my pocket. You know, I gotta go. I gotta go out there and sing. All that you dream. You gotta help me out, bro. And I don't know, man. You know, it's hard. I'm not. I'm not a religious person. I guess I'm sort of a spiritualish person. But music is energy, and I think that human bodies and souls are energy. And when you move energy and all this shit goes on, as together, and you got a whole group of humans that love that music in one room,
1: stuff happens. Yeah. And
0: um. And. I, I don't know, it just all came and as musicians, as kind of these kind of shamanistic people, we knew after the gig that we had bonded. We, we knew that something had happened. And the business people and everybody else involved who had other agendas, they, they couldn't even come close to touching that particular moment. And that's the spirit behind Little Feet right now. And I'll tell you something, man, when that happens with a group of people and we have a profoundly talented team of business people now profoundly great management um, road manager tour, you know manager uh, sound team you know, my, my producer engineer of over 20 years Charlie Martinez who I've referenced many times in this call
1: is now doing front of house and recording work for Little oh, cool
0: so these families are coming
1: together. Yeah. You know, and
0: and um, profound shit happens out of that. And I think that there's going to be a profoundly cool chapter for Little Feet I'm hoping that we can kind of get get another let it roll type situation going on for the band. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Lowell's Will, not coming back. Paul, Richie, they're not coming back. But you know what, man. These guys, Fred, Kenny, Sam, Bill, they're they're just as important and they're with us and they're playing their fucking asses off. Yeah. So so let's go. You know, and for Tony and I, as the new guys, I mean, there's no band that's more important for either of us. So so we're gonna we're gonna make it happen. You know, we're gonna do something, we're gonna do something good. And it's gonna feel good for us, and hopefully it's gonna feel good for everybody. And that's inspiration, man. I mean, that's, especially through this pandemic, when we're all trying to figure out with live music. I mean, we've been saying, you know, we were supposed to get together in September, and we couldn't because Tennessee couldn't get their shit together. Mm -hmm. You know, we were supposed to do something in Nashville, and their numbers suck. So, it's too risky for us on a number of levels to do it. Yeah. But, um, we're gonna
1: do it. I'm excited. I can't wait. I'm really, really super, I'm such a Little Feet fan and I'm super excited and I think it's such a great matching between you and them. It just makes sense. I'm,
0: I'm really happy to hear you say that, man. I mean, the fans have been unbelievably supportive and I gotta tell you, my band, the Greg Almond band, their, the Breadbasket was always the Eastern Seaboard and particularly the Northeast. And it was funny, because the seven gigs I did with Little Feet before the lockdown, it's amazing. Like, I saw all these people at the meet and greets who were the same people that I saw with Greg and with my band. Right. And you start to realize, like, it's tribe. It's the Almond Brothers and Little Feet are inseparable for me. Uh, and and they're families, you know, and there's there's a there's a big intertwining of the two also like Kenny Bradney used to play with Dwayne, with Delaney and Bonnie and Sam also and then you know, there's a lot of crossovers going on. Greg and Lul were really good friends. Greg was friends with, Greg was a huge Little Feet fan and great friend of Woe it just there's all these interconnections between the, and it makes a lot of sense because they're the two they're the two best American bands I'd say with the band yeah the six, those three bands and, and they're all interconnected yeah. Levon was friends with all of them Levon was best friends with Richie Greg was friends with Levon it's all it's all one family yeah. those three bands
1: yeah it makes sense absolutely and I
0: I've worked with the iterations of all three of
1: them yeah that's so cool that is so cool I'm super excited when does the record when does, when does Rust Belt come out what's the date well it's
0: coming out on coming a out label out of Queens um, it's called Immediate
2: Family and I think the release date is September 21st okay cool
0: And we're playing, I should say, when is this going to air, by the
1: way? Well, that's what we're going to talk about when you and I get off the air. That's what I want to talk to you about. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, (laughs) I'll I'll plug it anyway. We're having our album release party at Levon
2: Health Studios in Woodstock on Saturday, September 11th. Okay.
0: So if this airs before then, they'll have that. And then in New York City, we're going to have one at Rockwood Music Hall Stage 2. Uh,
1: in Manhattan on the Lower East Side on Thursday,
0: October 28th. Okay, so cool. So those
1: are the two, two release parts. Excellent.
0: That's all on my website,
1: ScottGerard.com. Cool. Well, Scott, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time, and I know that you've been, uh, you know, navig- literally literally navigating your way uh, uh, up the uh, New York Thruway. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry about all the noise. I had to, I ran out. I ran out of
0: gas and had to stop at a gas station. It's just, it's been it's been crazy, man. Because we, you know, we still don't have babysitters, and it's the dog days of summer, so my kids aren't back in school yet. And I just got back from Florida doing a True Fighter course yesterday. Right.
1: Um. So I'm just I I'm, I'm running. I have a gig tonight
0: with Brian Mitchell here in Woodstock. I have a gig tomorrow in East Hampton where I'm playing somebody's private party uh, who requested to have me. So I'm I'm running like a chicken with my head cut off.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? It's better than the alternative.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, at least we can play outside.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. When it doesn't rain. Right. Man, it's been so cool to talk to you and and I appreciate you taking the time out.
0: Back at you, man. I had a lot of fun. And uh, we had a whole, for your listeners, we had a great conversation before this. We, we told our we told our 9-11 stories, which I got to say, yours is a, is a whole lot better than mine. Uh,
1: I wouldn't call it better.
0: Up, uh, well, you know, a lot more interesting. But uh, look, I mean, you know, it's, thank you for doing what you do. I mean, this format. I, as I told you in the conversation before I'm, I'm a podcast junkie Right. so I got a, I, I wasn't aware of yours until you reached out to me so now I got a whole other thing to listen
1: to while I run well cool um, I, I, I invite you to check out the Eric Johnson interview it's trippy <laughs> how,
0: how long did you talk about like speaker cables
1: and, we, and tube filaments you know oddly enough we didn't we had a great conversation I actually posed the question to him you know, what if you didn't do all this? What if you just went out there with you a guitar, a cable, and a Princeton? And his response was, "I would need five other guys to be with me to help me get it done." <laughs> and I disagree. I disagree. I disagree because I have I actually have video proof and I I give it gave it to him. I have video proof of him with just a strat, a a cord and a Princeton. And it sounds just like him, so you know.
0: Well, I mean, you know, he's a phenomenal. Uh, I will, I will look forward to doing it. But I, it's funny, man, because I, I, run, it's, I've done a lot of the guitar podcasts, and um, I, I was on Greg Cox recently. By the way, Greg Cox was a guitar teacher in Uncle Bob's Music in Wisconsin when I first met him when I was 14 years old, <laughs> and I used to go. I used to go see Greg playing a biker bar in
2: Cedarburg. Right. Um, and he was an early influence of mine. Uh-huh. Um, but I was
0: finally on his podcast. We told a lot of stories about all those Milwaukee people I mentioned. It was an awesome... I, I, I encourage your people to check it out after this, since we're at the end of this. But um, I was on Greg's podcast. And, and again, we, we kind of talked, like, in a similar way to you and I, except with Greg and I it was more down the old Milwaukee rabbit hole. But we got to the end, and I said, Greg strings, picks, amps, guitars. You know? This is going to be profoundly disappointing for your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> like, we didn't talk about any guitar shit. Like,
1: none. Yeah, I had—I think I've had Greg on the show four times, and we don't go there a whole bunch.
0: Yeah, so I don't know, I've done a bunch of these, and I, I don't think I've talked about my gear once. So <laughs> I don't know what that says about me as a guitar player, but I definitely, like, I was on Josh Smith's um, his television was yeah, flat v- you know?
1: yeah the flat view yeah the flat view
0: and I remember
1: starting and I was just like Josh I, I don't know what I'm going to say to you and he's like what do you mean
0: I'm like it's a guitar podcast with you like you're like a real guitar player yeah. you know <laughs> oh <That's> funny. <laughs> I have like a couple things that I do but it's like you
1: know I don't know I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm going to show you Well, it, that's <laughs> you <know? laughs> funny you know when I when I had Josh on I went to his, he was here in Austin and I went to his Airbnb and we we did a lot of gear. We talked a lot of gear. Actually, I was kind of surprised how much gear we talked. But um, the gear master. Yeah, he kind of is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Great player.
0: Well, we hit we hit the two hour mark. So congratulations.
1: <laughs> Same to you. <laughs> well, thanks, just man. Done. I just pulled into Woodstock and uh, oh, wow, some lunch and then had the sound check. So That's we, fantastic. We did, we did the drive. All right. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, let me tell you, man, it I was great. And uh, I, if I, if you ever get to Austin, let me know. You got my number? Give me a holler. I'll take you out for some great barbecue if you are a meat eater. Um, uh, now, wait a second. Wait a second.
0: Hold on now. You just said, you just said the magic word because I am a... <laughs>
2: Tw- over 20 year barbecue connoisseur. Okay. Uh, being a man of the road, I've tried to eat.
1: It. I've been a lockhart a couple times. All right.
2: Now
0: I was. I am a huge Aaron Franklin maniac. <laughs> my project. My project during the pandemic was my friend Connor Kennedy got me into his books and I got Franklin steak and I bought a PK 360 grill <laughs> oh and I learned how to reverse sear. Over Post Oak, and I tell you what, man, I will. I, if you're ever up here, I will mess you up with a bone and rib eye. All right. I got that down to a all right. All right. All right. But, but, but here's the thing: I haven't even tried to touch the goddamn brisket. I still haven't been to Franklin. So, you know, if you got the cell phone number or something, you sound like a man who's, who's well connected. <laughs> uh, that's that's my dream because I've hit all the other ones.
1: All right. Have you done Blacks out in yes. Lockhart? You did Blacks? Okay. Did you do Sam's over on East 12th Street? No. Okay. That I need to do. Okay. So that was that was uh, Stevie's kind of hangout. Him and Tommy used to hang out there a lot. Um, so w- when you come, I will take you there and I'm buying. All right. It's a date.
2: Okay. I, I guarantee you, um, well...
0: I guarantee you that next year, Little Feet will play in Austin. It's just a matter of when, not if. Okay. So, we'll try to make those things coincide, hopefully.
1: That sounds good. I'm, I'm down. Like I said, I'm buying.
0: This was a great hang, man. I appreciate it. It was a nice, nice break in my day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, man. I'm glad. And uh, be safe out there, and I wish you all the best.
0: All right. Thanks so much for having me, bro.
1: All right. Bye-bye. Take care.
3: rang and the children sang but a cruel winter was sure to come the Boys they had a band thought they'd try their hand The music worked its way into their As the first boy was shipped off to get his gun Michigan sunset, winter's coming in in the sails under that lumber And I know that I'll be back again His confidence would swell He'd fight this living hell But he refused to carry a gun With the medics pack in hand, convinced that all men are born as one. Maybe there was a silent prayer as the night's first morning flare cast a light over. the world all alone he wished for one more he felt his own warm blood soak through his hands It happened so fast This breath would be his last And his company began to fall back I swear to soul, and a cold wind blew him far away.
0: Show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher Radio, GuitarRadio Show.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. Find Guitar Radio Show on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And remember, if you like the artists you hear on Guitar Radio Show, don't just stream their music, buy it.